folks. Hope everyone is doing well. Welcome again to another episode of the Steve Schramm Show. Had a little bit different episode last week, but we're back to our kind of regularly scheduled programming this week. And I'm motivated and excited to get to bring God's uh, word and God's truth and the truth about God's world uh, to you today. And we're going to respond. This is going to be fun, I think, to an atheist tirade that I came across on the internet just a couple of weeks ago. I was talking with one of my uh, Facebook friends who is also in apologetics ministry, and she pointed this uh, um, picture out that was basically a part of a text conversation that they had, and I thought it was too good not to respond to. It would be helpful and edifying for you, so that's what we're doing today. Alright, alright, so we're responding to an internet atheist tirade today. Now, I wanted to do this uh, really for a couple of reasons. You know, when I first read what I'm going to read to you, something really very interesting happened when I was looking at it. I thought, you know, this particular thing is just full, this response from this atheist, is just simply full of these assertions that, uh, and these complex questions that would have absolutely shaken my faith to the core just a few years ago. I mean, as I reflected on these questions, I thought, my goodness, these are so easy to respond to It's almost like this person has never even read a Christian response or a Christian uh, kind of apologetic towards these questions at all, if having ever read any of that sort of thing. And that was my first thought. But then my second thought was, well, gosh, like how many Christians are where I was just three or four years ago, and and please, please, I'm nowhere near where I need to be. I'm I'm not saying this in a bragging way. I just mean that had I not got uh, really interested in Christian apologetics, I might not know the answers to these questions. And this is one reason why one of the talks that I am working on, uh, hopefully being able to present in the future as part of my speaking ministry, is going to be about why everybody should become a Bible nerd. Um, We have this notion today that there are this category of super Christians or, or something to this effect who are the Bible nerds, whether it be the theological scholars or whether it be um, the pastor of large churches. The, these kind of people are the Bible nerds, but us regular people just read, read every now and then and have a very basic understanding. But um, this is, as far as I know, a, a completely modern and very unbiblical kind of notion. Um, if you look towards the biblical record, back all throughout the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament, you see that, yes, there were certain groups of people whose lives were devoted to study of the scriptures. Of that, there's no doubt. But people, the 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 the, the general person who was aiming to follow God in all of their pursuits was in a position where they took scripture extremely seriously. I mean, this was not just some additional thing that they did at one day of the week 
um, in part of their lives that they occasionally picked up and, and interacted with throughout the week, uh, like many Christians do today. It was not that way. Uh, in the Bible, we completely find this idea of total and complete dedication. The Bible treats the question of who God is, if God exists, and he does, and the Bible assumes that he does, the Bible treats this as the most important truth that one can possibly grasp. And if one grasps that truth, it becomes immediately important to see how, um, or it becomes immediately obvious to see how it would be important to interact with God's truth on a daily basis and in a meaningful, significant way. So I, I'd like to make the case for people, and this not what, what this particular episode is about doing, but I just want to offer this plea to become a Bible nerd. Man, get interested in theology. Get interested in apologetics. Try to get others around you interested in these things. I think that if we would just stop contributing to this dichotomous mindset of the Bible nerds and the regular people, and instead just started in a kind way, edifying our our brethren and our, our, our sisters and our brothers uh, to take on a deeper understanding of the scriptures, I think that we could begin to make some real difference. What I have found is that people who I didn't think would be interested in this stuff when I first present it are really truly interested in it and take an interest in it and pursue learning about these things further and enjoy having conversations about these things. It was very surprising to me to see that, but it is what happens. So um, I would say let's really try to avoid this dichotomous mindset and let's make the case to everyone who is a Christian that we all become Bible nerds, uh, in a sense. Now, that's kind of a funny way of putting it, but you know what I mean. Let's take the scriptures seriously. So, what I wanted to do was simply just read this little tirade to you, and then we're going to just take um, all of the questions that are raised and spend the next few minutes looking at them. And what I what I really want to show is just how easily answered these things are. Now, to, to be sure, there are good questions to ask, and some of these are not necessarily uh, bad, and they would require, to give a, a thoroughly adequate answer, they would require probably more unpacking than we are going to spend time on today. But the point still stands that there are answers that can be given to each of the questions within this little tirade in, you know, seconds that are satisfactory, I think, to provoke further study and not just simply dismiss the question or accept the question as a legitimate problem for Christianity. I don't think we have to do that. And so that's what I want to show you as we look through this particular um, internet atheist tirade. Well, that's my introduction for you. We're going to read that. I want to take a, a really, really quick break and tell you about uh, a new resource that we just put out. Uh, but as soon as we come back from that, we are going to start reading. Crucial to any apologetic about the natural evil and suffering in our world is our understanding of the fall. However, many Christians today lose the force of the biblical case by accepting ideas that are seemingly contrary to scripture, such as deep time and even Darwinian evolution. 
So what does the Bible teach about the fall? Well, in our new course on creation and predation, we're going to spend three lessons unpacking the biblical teaching about the fall of man. We'll answer questions like, was God's original creation actually perfect? What about viruses and bacteria? Can we really teach in good conscience that all animals were once vegetarian? What if Satan's fall was responsible for sin instead of Adam's? And many, many more. In addition, we'll take a deep dive into how to use this line of thinking when defending our faith. It's helpful, of course, to have philosophical arguments, such as the moral argument for the existence of God when making our case. But much too often, the biblical argument, which I think is even stronger, is shoved off to the side. Well, no more. We want to be able to use the fall in our defense of the faith. And in this video course, you'll learn how to answer the toughest questions about creation and predation and how to apply them practically in your evangelism. So I invite you to just visit our site, go to steveshram.com, click the drop down on store and go to courses and you'll find it there to purchase for just $37. It's a video course that comes with videos and audio downloads and also PDF uh, slideshow presentations. So I hope you'll go there, check out the creation and predation course that is now live and available immediately. All right, welcome back. So what we want to do is look at this uh, this tirade that an atheist launched out into in response to a question. And again, this is a little further down, down the thread in the question. So we don't have full context, but it's uh, um, um, easy to see the point of the, that the person was making here. So the question that was originally asked was, did God make the earth look old? Did God make the earth look old? Okay, now I have actually written uh, a a response to a similar kind of question on the blog. So you can go to stevestram.com, search for that, and you'll certainly find that. Um, um, if the earth is young, why did God make it look old? And I, again, I asked the question in sort of, sort of a loaded way on purpose. But I would in, invite you to go check that out for my thoughts on that. But that was the question that this person was responding to. And here is his answer. Quote, It's not just the earth, though. The moon, with its many craters, appears to have had a long history. If you were God and wanted people to believe in you, why would you make it so tricky? Why would you make it that certain people don't get to know you? Why not strike down people who are about to do despicable things in the same way you did with St. Paul? God doesn't make things easy. And the more we discover, the less we trust God. Christianity, which is already in decline, will become effectively extinct in the years to come. End quote. And he signs his name there, Ian. So Ian has these things to say. Ian is an atheist, and I'm going to call him an internet atheist. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't like to be derogatory towards people, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of using that term internet atheist in a derogatory sense because there are people who are more sophisticated in their atheism, in their understanding of atheism, and in their presentation of objections to 
Christianity. And most of the ones that you will interact with on the internet are just not that way. They read things, they will believe things that are quite frankly ludicrous sounding in order to escape what to me appear to be obvious truths and uh, to many others as well. So let's just unpack each one of these um, and we'll we'll read them again as we obviously uh, unpack them and that way you can get a sense for the question uh, that is being asked in each case. And again, these were questions that any one of them um, picked out apart from the others a couple of years ago might have gave me pause and caused me concern. But today, I see them as uh, challenges that uh, don't even get off the ground, let alone need to actually be defended against. Many of these are just simply just non-starters. So we're going to look at these questions, and then we will uh, go. Okay, so the question was asked, did God make the earth look old? Well, um, in response to the, the question to start, to start with. Like I said, I did write something on this, uh, but there are a few thoughts that I wrote down here that I thought might be instructive to share. First of all is the idea that age cannot be seen. Age is something that we use to understand the time from something's creation, but the actual concept of age cannot be seen. Um, When we look at somebody and we make a guess as to how old that person is. We're not uh, really saying their age. Um, what we're saying is, like, if, if we say um, that they look like they might be 37 years old. Well, age is not something that could be seen. There is no 37 years oldness that shows up in a photograph. And the reason for that is because you can line up five different people who are all 37 years old, and it's very possible um, to find five people who are 37 years old who look remarkably different based on various things. And I think you could even say that this is the case if they were all healthy. I don't think you have to have unhealthy people. I think there are healthy 37-year-olds that look different ages because of various factors. And the reason is that age cannot be seen. Rather, what we see are things, we might call them proxies. We see things that um, are characteristic of people who also tend to happen to be created 37 years, um, um, who, let me put it a little bit differently, who see, it seems that they were born 37 years in the past. There are certain features and things that we see that we can deduce that somebody who is 37 years old might typically exhibit these kinds of properties. But we can't see the age. Okay. Now, this is not an argument for whether or not we can see the age of the earth. The fact of the matter is that we can look at the rocks within the earth. We can look at the fossils within the rocks, etc. And we all see the same thing. When people look at the earth and say the earth looks old, the question is appropriate. Well, old with respect to what? We don't have another earth to compare it to. We don't have a 
definite recording, assuming atheism. We don't have any kind of recording as to how old the earth actually is. So how do we define old, number one? Um, Number two, how are we getting that it looks old? Why why does it look old? Why can't it actually look young? Um, And to that point, I say that 6,000 years is old. I think the earth does look old. I think it looks um, uh, 6,000 years old. The reason, though, is because I have a definite standard, a definite time I could point back to. And when I say definite, of course, that's a bit malleable, but somewhere um, around 6,000 years, I would say, um, that we can say, okay, well, we have recording from the God who created the world that it is this age. So that's how old I think it looks. I think it looks like the age that is recorded on if I may say it this way, the world's birth certificate. Uh, We look at somebody's birth certificate and that's how we know how old they are. Uh, It is the record of the time of their birth. And we have such a record in the biblical revelation. And so that's our standard. That's our measurement. That's how we know. So when we look look at at rocks in the ground, etc., who are we to say that they look old just looking at them? They could simply just look like rocks that have experienced a global catastrophic upheaval. And on the 6,000-year view, that's exactly what we would expect. So, again, um, it's built this idea that the Earth just looks old, where old is defined to be 4.5 billion years, just simply assumes uniformitarianism. That's the bottom line. It assumes uniformitarianism because what they're going to say is that it look old it looks old with respect to the dating methods, but the dating methods rely on the philosophy of uniformitarianism and it must be demonstrated, not simply asserted that that is the correct philosophy. There are reasons and we've been through this on episodes before. There are reasons that would help us to think both biblically and scientifically that we should doubt the idea of uniformitarianism and we won't rehash those here. But because of those, I think it's appropriate to say that age cannot be seen and that the birth certificate, the birth record of the world is where we should get that standard from a historical perspective as to what the true age is. And I think that the Bible gives us that. Now, if you don't think so, you're welcome to that opinion, uh, but I, I think you're wrong, and um, I would argue that. So, that's my general thoughts on the question, did God make the earth old? Again, there's multiple ways that we could even answer that question, but I think that's um, the uh, the way that I would like to go about it. Uh, age simply cannot be seen, and uniformitarianism must be demonstrated, not simply asserted, and I think there is good reason to doubt it, both from God's word and from God's world. So, let's begin diving into the questions of this atheist tirade that ensues. So um, what about this claim, the claim that the moon has many craters and therefore a long history? Well, to this person, I would ask this question. Why think that cratering necessarily denotes a long history? Let me say that again. If, If this person says the moon has many craters and therefore a long history, why think that? Why think that cratering necessarily denotes a long 
history. Well, again, we spent a whole episode on this topic, and we did uh, talk a lot about the moon with an expert in the field, uh, Wayne Spencer. And Wayne weighed in with some really helpful insights from um, both his own study and also from the study of Dr. Danny Faulkner, a uh, creationist astronomer who taught uh, astronomy for many, many years in universities and now works for Answers in Genesis. And what he deals with is different creationist theories of cratering, which have cratering fitting perfectly within the 6,000-year time frame. So again, to say that cratering denotes a long history is once again to simply assume uniformitarianism. Now, you can, you can ha- have uniformitarianism in a Christian worldview and an atheistic worldview in principle, okay? In principle, this is possible. But again, I think that the biblical information denotes otherwise. I'm fine, seriously. I want to make this clear. I'm fine with God having created a world that was billions of years old. But I not only don't think he did that, I think he gave us reason in the Bible to think that he didn't. And so that's why I don't hold that. It's not that notion that I'm opposed to because I believe under that notion, the theological difficulties that I have with that, et cetera, just wouldn't be there. If we serve a good God, and I believe we do, then absolutely, he could have done it that way if he wanted to. But I think there's reason to think that he didn't. And so while you could, in principle, affirm uniformitarianism, being a theist or an atheist or whatever have you, um, it doesn't necessarily follow that uniformitarianism is true. Again, this has to be demonstrated, and the idea that cratering denotes a long history um, is simply based on that philosophy. And so it doesn't even get off the ground with respect to this question, because the philosophy that underlies it first has to be argued for. So that's that. Okay, the second one. If you were God and wanted people to believe in you, why would you make it so tricky? If you were God and wanted people to believe in you, why would you make it so tricky? Well, let me first start off by saying, and we're going to have a few of these here, that we've got these why questions. And these why questions are always going to be a bit speculative and a bit inductive because we have circumstances in the Bible um, and situations where God does tell us exactly why he did a thing or why uh, he, he, he did one thing one way and not another way. But we don't always have that. And in fact, very rarely do we have that. So um, to speculate as to, as to why oftentimes is just a meaningless question. What we want to know is what is true. Um, And of course, we want to be able to uphold in our answers the goodness of God, etc. But I think that we could certainly do that given the information we do have. So I think that our speculations with respect to the why questions that have been asked here are good, but in a sense, they're still speculation. So let's be careful when answering on behalf of God. So again, the question was, if you were God and wanted people to believe in you, why would you make it so tricky. Well, uh, my first thought on that is that over 90%, I believe the number is, of the world's population believes in a personal God of some form. Over 90%. 
now this is just huge. The, the last statistic I heard was that atheism accounts for about 2% of the world's population. Um, and I just can't help but to think that it's really not so tricky to believe in God. It's really not so tricky to believe in a personal God. The Bible says that we have a conscience that has been written on our hearts, and we all to some degree affirm these notions of right and wrong. The Bible says that he has revealed himself in his um, in his world through his creation. There are things that we can learn about God, about the nature of God, about the goodness of God, about who God is, just based on natural revelation. And in fact, the Bible says that this revelation is so clear that not one person will be without excuse on Judgment Day. And that's what Romans 1 deals with. It seems to suggest that not only is it not tricky to believe in God, but that everyone really does know that there is a God. And they will affirm that at the end of of days when everyone, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, right, that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, this is going to happen. This is a future certainty that the Christian can have hope in. And what makes us without excuse is that revelation of God to the world. And certainly the idea that humanity is profoundly spiritual and made for spirituality is confirmed by this fact that so much, the vast majority of the world's population believes in a personal God of some form. So I don't think it's tricky. Again, this is another question. Why would you make it so tricky? It's a complex question. It assumes what it's trying to prove. God did not make it tricky. According to him, it's not tricky at all. So that question, again, doesn't even need to be defended against. It just doesn't really even get off the ground. Third question, why would you make it that certain people don't get to know you? Why would you make it that certain people don't get to know you? Well, um, to be sure, there are Christians who would admit this more uh, forcefully. There are some Christians who uh, their view entails this notion, but they don't want to admit it. Um, and there, so on those certain views of Christianity, it is true that God makes it to where certain people get to know him and certain other people do not. And the um, standard kind of appeal there is that whatever happens, whether it results in ultimately getting to know God and be in relationship with him or uh, not know God and not be in a relationship with him and this uh, knowing or not knowing in the sense of the personal relationship basically extends to eternity. Um, There are certain Christian views who affirm this, who say that really ultimately God does make it this way that certain people get to know you and certain people don't. Well, um, again, this is a question that, depending on your your views on this question, you are probably going to have to offer a bit of a defense for. For me, um, he didn't do it. Uh, not on not on my view, not in any meaningful sense. And let me just give you a real brief explanation of what I mean by that. Um, I am a um, a monergistic Molinist. Okay, when it comes to uh, soteriology, my, my my understanding of salvation, I am a monergistic 
Molinist. And what this simply means um, if, is this, if I were to kind of put it in a simple way. Um, it means that God is sovereign, but man can freely resist God's choice to save whom he will. And the Bible seems to give some indication that the world is actually arranged in such a way, and you can look at Acts 17 to get uh, some of this, and there's some other suggestions um, elsewhere in Scripture, uh, but Acts 17 is the main place I would, I would really get this understanding from. Um, it, it could very possibly be that the world is arranged in such a way that the only people who ultimately will not be saved are the people who would not be saved if placed in the position to have heard the gospel. And so uh, I should clarify a little bit that this question here, why make it that certain people don't get to know you, is really just a different way, I think, of stating the question, why have you not revealed yourself to all people? What about people who never get to hear, etc.? And uh, insofar as that is what uh, this atheist meant to uh, meant to ask with this question, then I think that's the appropriate answer. On my view, um, man has free will to resist the call of God, and it's very well possible that those who never hear the gospel are precisely those people who would not have responded to the gospel had they heard it anyway. And so therefore, on Judgment Day, there will be no person who could say that they didn't have enough evidence, that had they just been in some other scenario, God would, uh, that they would have chosen God. Because ultimately God knows that in the final analysis that would not have happened. Even if the missionary had got there, even if the uh, person who was on the way to share the gospel uh, with you had not um uh, been killed in that car accident. If he had made it to his destination and he was and he had got there and he shared the gospel with you, God knows that you would not have believed anyway. And therefore, on Judgment Day, um, it's the condition of your heart that says whether or not you are um, ultimately going to be in heaven. And spend eternity with Jesus, and, and I and I fully believe that the view that I hold preserves the free will of man, but also holds in highest regard the sovereignty of God over all things. And so, there is an ultimate ultimate sense, simply in the sense in which God created the world, that we can't avoid the fact that um, certain people know God and certain people don't, but. This uh, result is not not in virtue of God creating the world. Um, it's in virtue of the free choice that you exhibited as someone who was given agency as being made in the image of God. So why make it that certain people don't get to know you? Um, I, I don't think that God made it that certain people don't get to know him. I think that some people freely reject him and would freely reject him under any circumstance they were placed in. Question number four, he goes into, why not strike down people who are about to do despicable things in the same way you did, talking to God here, with St. Paul? Well, um, because then Mr. Atheist would complain that God was a moral monster. 
right? As he um, undoubtedly does when he looks back to the Old Testament and points out how God takes out the Amalekites and makes this unjust and, and says this is unjust and calls it genocide, etc. Not taking into account that these guys were guilty of Molech worship and child sacrifice to this and other gods and just the the patience that God displayed in waiting 400 years before taking out this people group um why not strike people down who are about to do despicable things well again uh it's this kind of why question how are you going to possibly assess every single circumstance but we do know that when in the biblical record god did strike down people for doing despicable things the atheist complains about that and so uh, i don't think you can be consistent and ask this question now to be fair i don't have direct evidence that this particular atheist mr ian uh would uh, uh, assert that God was a moral monster for these um, quote-unquote Old Testament atrocities, but I have a feeling that he would. And insofar as that's the case, then uh, this is a question that just doesn't even get off the ground because the atheist can't ask it consistently. Of course, you could also make the case that in order for the atheist to make this judgment in the first place, a moral standard must exist, and the atheist must show that there is some objective moral standard that is not merely reduced to preference on his view, which I think is also impossible. So again, this seemingly challenging question, man, why doesn't God just take care of people who are about to do despicable things? This seemingly challenging question actually doesn't even get off the ground in the first place. Okay, question five. God doesn't make things easy, and the more we discover, the less we trust God. Now, I wasn't exactly sure. There are a couple things, really, that um, that he could mean uh, by this. For example, like God of the gaps kind of thing. Um, you know, or he could be talking about, you know, God doesn't make things easy. He could be talking about moral suffering and things of that nature. But when he says the more we discover, the less we trust God. So, again, he's kind of vague here. So let me speak to both of those things. Number one, um, says who? And why should it be easy anyway? Um, if so, let's just say that that the issue is whether or not um, uh, with the evil and suffering in the world, uh, we trust God less and less. Uh, let's say that that's what he's getting at. That we trust God less and less because of the evil and suffering in the world. Well, again, uh, if it were much easier to know God, it might violate free will. God could certainly make it where every person knows him by force. But I think if we want to preserve that we have freedom of the will, and some Christians don't, but I do personally, um, I think we want to say that in the preservation of that, um, uh, we, we we don't want to say that God would make it so easy that he forces us into a relationship with him because that doesn't sound like a true love to me. And God is the ultimate standard of love and benevolence and goodness. And in order for that to be the case, I think that the choice to love God is going to have to be a free will um, decision uh, or at least the choice not to resist the, the woo and the call of God. Um, if Ian means this in the sense of the less we trust God because of the more we discover via science, uh, I would say that, again, this is just simply a 
half truth. There are things, certainly, as we discover more, that we understand there are scientific explanations for that people used to just um, punt to miracle and punt to mystery on, like uh, lightning, for example, you know, hundreds of years ago. Uh, but we since discovered that there was a naturalistic, um, or at least a naturally occurring, let me say it that way, a naturally occurring scientific explanation for this. Well, again, um, the Bible says that God holds all things together. In him and through him all things consist. It seems to be that there is absolutely no problem here. Just because there is a... Um, uh, I, I'm trying to think which philosophical term would be correct. An approximate cause, maybe, for that. Um, obviously, we can look at the 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 atmospheric data, and we can look at what causes lightning to take place, and we can see that there is a natural um, explanation for the phenomena. But that doesn't mean that it's merely natural. Um, if God were to stop holding this world together, holding the creation together, by definition, it would just simply fall apart. The lightning would be the least of our problems. Nothing would work. And reasoning backwards from we can explain lightning via some sort of natural occurring um, phenomena, um, therefore God didn't create the world. I mean, that's just ludicrous. And hopefully this is not the argument he's making. I don't think anybody who would legitimately make that argument Um but you see where I'm going with that. If science uh, is the problem here, I think ultimately what we have is a science of the gaps. Because when it comes to the big questions, the meaningful questions that theologians have wrestled with and philosophers have wrestled with for centuries, who are we? You know, why are we here? Where did we come from? Why does anything exist at all? These sorts of, of hugely meaningful questions Atheism really has no answers for these questions. Science has no answers for these questions. And if you want to hold out for an eventual answer to these questions as an atheist, well, that is your prerogative. But now you are affirming science of the gaps. It's not a fact of science itself that science is going to discover these things. It's a philosophical faith choice that leads you to think that science will provide an answer, given how science has had a provided an answer for other things before but it still doesn't give us those those questions of meaning and of purpose and of why um, you can merely explain repeatable events via science really what happens the kind of thing that can happen in a test tube and again when we're talking about biblical revelation we're dealing with something entirely different so when you say god doesn't make things easy i think um that that's wrong i think that god does make it easy um to to know him and to recognize his creation but some of us in our hardness of hearts do not want to see that and whether it comes to our moral intuitions and suffering and the evil we experience in the world or whether it comes to what we think science is able to say about the world, the fact is that this question, again, just doesn't even get off the ground. The more we discover, the less we trust God, is what Ian says. But for me, it's the exact opposite experience. The more I discover, the more I trust God. My learning of apologetic material and of my, my, my dive into philosophy and into science and from a hopefully very objective perspective, not just from an apologetic 
perspective, but from the perspective of exploring these things has taught me more about God, not less. Um, and I, I've, I trust God more in my personal life and in my personal walk because I have the truth of who he is and the truth about the world around me to lean on. Okay, the last question raised by our atheist is this. Christianity, which is already declined, will be effectively extinct in the years to come. Or I should say that this is um, a, a assertion that he made, not a question. So, um, is this true? While not according to the data that we actually have available, um, this is just um, a wrong. It's an assertion that is just not true. Nominal Christianity is in decline, which uh, affects certain polls. But evangelicalism, actual Christianity, on the other hand, is holding steady, uh, steadily um, and, and even rapidly growing in some cases. So what we're having here, William Lane Craig has talked about this a little bit in his work. What we have is this kind of um, thinning out in the polls of 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 Christianity, but what we actually see when we look at the at the data from churches and from religious organizations, what we see is that the lines are simply becoming more divided as these mainline denominations have begun to look more and more like the world. Many people have begun leaving simply because they don't see any reason to be in church because the church is just doing what the rest of the world is. It was the same problem the Corinthians uh, faced. The world was influencing the church more than the church was influencing the world. And that's exactly the kind of thing that's going on in modern mainline denominations. And there are they are fanning out. They are thinning out. And the lines are becoming more divided. On one side, you've simply got Orthodox evangelical Christians, and on the other side, um, in the context that we're talking about, you've got um, those who are non-believers, um, whether they be for whatever stripe, and thus live according to the morality that their religious uh, belief or their worldview uh, belief holds. So it's not true that actual Orthodox Christianity is in decline. Rather, it's a sort of nominal Christianity that simply um, becomes more and more like the world and adopts more and more worldly practices that is thinning out. So will it be effectively extinct extinct in the years to come? Um, uh, It could be possible that Christians will become uh, extinct in the sense that um, many Christians are are killed off, but God always leaves a remnant, and you know we don't know what the future holds, and all we can do is simply approach that prayerfully and hopefully that God will use us in our individual um, lives and experiences. So um, let's go ahead and thank God for our time here together today and have a word of prayer and then um, we are going to dismiss us for this week. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you that um, as we looked at this tirade that ensued from this atheist, we just want to say thank you, Lord, that these are questions that have answers. Not only do they have answers, but Lord, the questions themselves seem to not even get off the ground. And I, I pray, Lord, that you now would work in us. You would help us. Um, to be the kind of people who encourage others and influence others 
to become defenders of the faith, to become serious about theology, to become serious about the Bible, and to become serious in their practice of Christian um, ethics and values, and uh, Lord, that they become closer and fall more in love with you each and every day through the study of your word and your world. We love you, Father, and we'd like to ask this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us this week here on the Steve Schramm Show. And again, as we mentioned earlier, I hope that you will check out that course that we just completed on creation and predation. It's based off of the podcast series that we did on that a little while back. So you can uh, listen to the podcast series, uh, certainly episodes, I think, um, uh, 36, 37, and 38, maybe. Um, that, that rings a bell. Uh, you can look back there, or you could go ahead and purchase this course. I refined some of the material. I put it into um, a video form. I created slides for it. You can use the slides in your own uh, work if you want to. Uh, that's fine with me. So um, it's available for 37 bucks right now, as we mentioned earlier on the Steve Schramm website. So you go check that out. Thank you again so much for joining us i hope and pray that you'll join us next week um subscribe to the show like the show share the show whenever you see it come up on your social media tell others about it we'd really like to uh gain more and more people joining us each and every week to learn more about god's word and god's world thank you so much i love you truly if you have any questions for me holler at steve um at steve at stevesram.com with my email address you can reach out anytime happy to talk to you. Thank you so much. Talk to you next time.